from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watts-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, our guest is Desmond Mead, who is executive director of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, author of the books Let My People Vote, My Battle to Restore Civil Rights of Returning Citizens, and America's Disenfranchised, How Restoring Their Vote Can Save the Soul of Our Democracy. Desmond is also the recipient of the McCourtney Institute's 2021 Brown Democracy Medal. And Chris, we had the chance to meet him recently when he came to campus to accept the medal and, and present a lecture on his work. It is sometimes in doing these podcasts, we meet people who are just extraordinary people. And, and, and Desmond Mead is one of them. I mean, leave aside for a moment the, um, you know, his really amazing work on on uh, the rights restoration in Florida and just focus on him as a human being you know he was an addict a felon had not anything but the clothes on his back and was you know talks in the uh, the first book quite a bit about how he was um, just waiting for a train to come by so he could just end his life and he didn't and he checked himself into rehab, and then he started uh, community college, and then he went to law school. And now he's he just won a MacArthur Genius Grant and had all his civil rights restored. It's just an amazing story. And it, it makes me think about how I um, react when I see homeless people. And it makes me think about how I react you know, when I hear about someone's addiction and, you know, he really forces you to recognize that there's a human being there and um, an enormous amount of potential. And, and so that's kind of where I start with him. And then after all that, you have the, uh, the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition that he leads and which led to this really breakthrough moment in, in American history for the ex-felons in Florida. I think what is so important about Desmond Mead's message is that we have to put the humanity back into the center of democracy. And he's really interested in improving democracy for everyone, despite your ideological, your policy preferences, that everybody should get a say. And, you know, just on that alone, Desmond Mead is a bigger person than I ever will be. So I think it's just worth taking a second here to say that this doesn't come up directly in the interview, but... Um, Desmond was the leader of the Amendment 4 campaign in Florida, which was a ballot initiative in 2018 that restored voting rights to more than a million people in Florida that had prior felony convictions. We, we talk about how some of the things that the, the legislature has done in response to that, but just to kind of put that out there when we're talking about the the, the gravity of, of Desmond's work and this really this coalition that he built to pass this initiative with broad support, something like 65% of the vote in, you know, what we know is a, is a very divided state in, in many respects. And I think, you know, there are, there are two things that need to be pointed out. One, yes, 65% 
is a, uh, I think that's right. And, and 65% in Florida, I think you'd have trouble getting that many to agree to the color of the sky, right? This is an amazing achievement. The other thing is that he's not talking about something that I think most people are just initially and immediately sympathetic to. You know, I think most people say, well, these people were felons. They, you know, that's mm-hmm. part of the, the price of, of breaking the law. And, you know, if they want to get it, get it back, they have to go through this, all these hoops, because otherwise it's, you know, they, 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 this is something they deserve. Now, I'm not saying that everyone thinks that, but I think it is a, just a tough initiative to get passed under any circumstances and in any state. And yet Desmond Mead did it and did it in, in Florida. And, and, I, and I think that is just, I mean, obviously, he was the leader of this large coalition and involved thousands of, of volunteers. But, you know, he was the leader. He was the, he was the, the face for this initiative. And, and it is just really an incredible achievement. But one of the things that this kind of um, initiative does is to call into question our common sense around that and also to help us remember where these policies came from in the first place. And felony disenfranchisement policies were not inevitable. They were enacted uh, as a kind of way to get around what the Constitution allowed in regards to who could be banned from the ballot. And, you know, they came up after Reconstruction was over in order to prevent, you know, formerly enslaved people from voting. So, you know, now over the century and a half, it has become common sense that policy has telegraphed the message that people who are in prison or formerly in prison don't deserve all of their rights. But it could have been different. And what we're seeing now in Florida, in California, in Virginia, in New York, in Iowa, in DC, is that people are starting to recognize that it could be different and it should be different. So, you know, it's it's really, this is, I guess, one of the places where we see, where people see that we, we could expand the franchise Mm-hmm. Um, and people are people are grabbing on a hold to that. But also, you know, I think he makes it really clear that when we take care of the least of us, we take care of everybody. Yeah. And, you know, he says, if we can ensure the rights of the most marginalized people, that means that everyone is going to have more rights. Well, I think that that is a good place to transition to the interview. Let's hear from Desmond. Let's hear about some of these ideas about humanity and all of these things that we've just been discussing. Let's go now to the interview with Desmond Mead. Desmond Mead, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jenna. It's a pleasure being here. So uh, in reading over your new essay on America's disenfranchised, why restoring their vote can save the soul of our democracy, you, you start that off by talking about um, your process of threading the needle between law, 
criminal justice and democracy. And I think a lot of people, just as you say, don't really think about the connection between the three of those things. So can you just start off by telling us how you threaded that needle or, or how you have threaded it over the, the course of your work with the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition? Well, thank you for that question. You know, I think that, you know, it's probably more about finding that through line. You know, I, I learned that uh, when I was practicing for a TED Talk about what is that through line that connects so many different things. And I look at that through line as humanity, right? And so when, you know, and it's caused me to really even just question about, you know, how politicized we've made things and that voting and democracy is actually less political than we make it out to be. And, and, it, and it's more about... Uh, I would say like humanity, right? How we care, how we view each other, how do we care about each other, you know? And what do we expect from each other as far as a society or a group of people that have made some type of assertion that we do want to live together, right? No one wants to be an island. And so when I was engaged in the work, you know, at first it seemed about, oh, it's all about just getting voting rights back to people who have previous felony convictions. But it was a much it was a much deeper conversation. When you go to criminal justice, it, oh, it's all about getting criminals off the street or fighting crime or whatever. But no, it was a deeper discussion about how we're treating people and what what like the type of things that we're cr making crimes and and then how we're punishing folks uh, for so-called violating these uh, these laws or statutes that we created. And then how do we treat these people after they've served their time? And, and at the end of the day, with like the people who we deal with as it relates to criminal justice are the same people who we're dealing with when it relates to felon disenfranchisement. And the problem was, was that we weren't looking at them as people first, right? We were looking at them as either criminals or ex-criminals and not as someone's father, someone's brother, sister, or mother. Right. And not seeing the humanity in them. And, and then if we're able to see the humanity in individuals who commit crimes or people who are trying to have access to democracy, if we're able to look at them through the lens of them being human beings first and part of our society, then that changes our approach to implementing uh, criminal justice policies. It changes our approach or our resistance in letting people vote. Because, I mean, there's even a debate now, even in the left, about whether or not people should be able to vote in prison, right? And the reality is, is that when you stop and think about it, people should never lose the right to vote. Right. Voting is like one of the clearest indicators of citizenship. And, you know, I, I think about like my sons. I have four sons. And anybody who has sons would tell you that they're going to do some type of boneheaded things at some point and uh, at, actually at multiple points. Right. And, and there are times when you just want to grab them like, what the heck are you doing? What are you thinking? But at no point whatsoever do my sons stop being my sons. And I don't think that American citizens should ever lose citizenship because they made a mistake. Right. But so there's still that debate about whether you should you know, vote in prison or should you wait till after you complete your sentence. At the end of the day, you know, it's about how are we viewing these folks? And, and, and if we view these folks in light of them being a criminal or someone that's that's done something wrong and should not be a part of our society, that's kind of I think it's different than. You know, if we were to actually view them a more in a more personal way and look and really recognize their humanity and know that they are part of our family. Right. 
Right. So the other thing that's sort of tied up in in all of this, in in partisanship, in politics, in even what you were saying, the notion of of humanity is is the notion of power. And there's there's a certain dimension of voting of politics that is inextricably about power. Who has it? Who doesn't? Who gets it? Who doesn't? So how have you grappled with that in, in your work and trying to balance power with with humanity? <laughs> and you know the thing about what I believe power is not is not partisan, right? And 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 I say that because you know when I think about even you know when we talk about felon disenfranchisement and you know we've seen that it, it's we've seen its resurgence in this country during the Reconstruction era. And it was specifically used as a tool to diminish the newfound political power of the newly released uh, enslaved people in um, in this country. During that time, I mean, my people, my ancestors that were hung and murdered and bitten by dogs, that was being done by Dixie Democrats, you know. And... A lot of folks look at, okay, now the, the whole situation was about stopping the newly freed people from being able to vote or have the political power. I looked at it as something deeper, and that was an affront against democracy. And, and so I think that our democracy is being attacked by both sides, right? Because at the end of the day, it's about who has that power, just like you said. And, and, and so— how we approach diminishing that power, right, I think dic- dictates that we have a clear understanding of who it is that's trying to get it. And if we think that we only need to look at the left or only need to look at the right, we're going to be off base and we're never going to be able to diminish that, you know, the, the power of the people who currently just really try to minimize who gets to participate and who don't. We see this in in redistricting, right? That's something that's a big topic today because of, you know, the balance of power in D.C. But redistricting has always been a tool that was used by both sides to select its voters, right? And that's something that's inherently wrong with the system because it, it feeds into this, you know, I have power and I should use that power to minimize who else can get power. Well, and that was also a, a key part of how you organized the Amendment 4 campaign, right? It wasn't necessarily about the outcome of which party is this going to benefit. It was about how is this going to, to help humanity, as, as you said earlier. Yeah, it, it, was a de- it was a deeper goal. It wasn't about turning Florida blue. I, I got to tell folks, and I used to tell them, listen, we don't need another blue state or another red state. What we need is a united state, right? And, you know, at the end of the day, we were fighting just as hard for that person that wanted to vote for Donald Trump as we were for the person who wished they could have voted for President Barack Obama. And so, because I I do believe that if you're really uh, a champion of democracy, then you're not going to be selective on who you're fighting for, right? And we're not just going to be fighting for people that look like us or think like us or or people who we hope vote like us, right? And, and, and sadly, we do have pockets of people that do that. Their motivation for championing certain voting rights uh, causes are based on their belief that if they're able to get these people their right to vote back, that it's going to mean more people on their side and they're going to get to advance their agenda. That is not 
advancing democracy. You know, that's actually, I think, advancing tribalism or something of that nature. I do believe that, you know, the true North is about really believing that our society becomes better. Our democracy becomes more vibrant when more people participate, even if they disagree with us. And being willing to live with the fact that, you know what, there might be more people who believe something other than what I believe, and I'm still okay with that. Right? What I should be happy about is that everybody had the opportunity to weigh in, and I think that's most important. How have you shared that message with with other people who are organizing campaigns not just just felon disenfranchisement i guess in in the the broader world of of what we think of as democracy reform or you know voting rights reform um how does that message go over (laughs) generally you know sometimes some folks find it hard to digest but the reality is i don't care what the issue is that you're working on right the thing is we politicize too too much, too many issues, right? It should not be a, a political question about whether or not a child deserves to have clean drinking water. That that is not that should not be a political question, and and sometimes we are you know we instigate the the politicization of issues just by how we even launching right for instance you know if there's a, a certain uh issue that that you're passionate about and you want to change and then you launch a campaign and you say well this is a progressive campaign about you know why are you putting that like label there Right. Because the minute you came out saying that this was a progressive campaign, you already drew some lines. You already said, "Okay, we're going to war with some with conservatives. You know, one of the things with our campaign was that people, you know, constantly used to try to characterize our campaign as a bipartisan campaign. And I used to just like really reject it. I'm like, no, we're not. No, we're not. And they were like, okay, I'm sorry. What I meant was you uh, you have a nonpartisan campaign. And I would soundly reject that notion too. And I would tell them that what we have or what we were was an organic grassroots movement that welcomed and enjoyed bipartisan support. And the difference is, is that we didn't lead with the politics, we led with the people, right? And and, and that's advice I give a lot of different uh, activists or organizations, right, is that don't, don't try so hard to lead with the politics, especially when the issues that we're talking about are basic human right issues. Because once you lead with the politics, then you automatically limit who you can talk to or who, who can engage in conversations with you about it. And so you have to cast a much broader net, right? And then you're able to bring in conservatives. You're able to bring in independents that would uh, really would much rather have a conversation about human rights than political ideology. Um, so there's also, I think, wrapped up in this, and, and you, I think, heard this in your, your work on the, the campaign, this notion of, oh, my vote doesn't matter. Uh, and that's, I mean, putting aside the question of, of disenfranchisement, I think even for people who can vote, there's this sense that my vote isn't going to count for anything. So how did, how did you combat some of those, those types of messages as you were out trying to, to garner support for, the, for your um, amendment? Well, you know, um, prior to launching the amendment, you know, I, you know, 
was engaged in a lot of GOTV and voter registration efforts in Florida. And I used to hear that a lot. And you know what surprised me? <laughs> because typically they'll tell you, don't argue with people, just keep it going because you're trying to meet your quotas. Uh, but I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't follow those orders. And one day I just decided to go back and engage the person that just told me that, you know, their vote didn't count or didn't, you know, didn't matter. And by the second question, I was able to <laughs> determine that that person couldn't even vote to begin with, right? And what I found was that a lot of those messages around not voting were coming from people who either thought that they could not vote or legitimately could not actually vote because of a prior felony conviction. And, you know, I, I instantly related to them, you know, because, you know, when I was released from prison and someone approached me about voting and I knew I couldn't vote, it was like a slap in the face reminding me that I'm not part of society again. And that's very hurtful because, I mean, deep down inside, we, we do want to be a part of something, right? We want to be loved and we want to be able to love and to be reminded that, listen, you're no good, that you're not a part of our group, you know, and you'll never be a part of our group is so hurtful that we would actually suppress that that hurt by masking it with an indifference right and so when something bothers us um, what we do is that we diminish the value of the thing that bothers us and so what we what, what I was seeing was people talking about uh, their vote didn't matter it didn't matter who got in office and all that to hide or mask the fact that or the pain from not being a part of something and then those other folks you know you know I, I would run into one of the things I would really get them with is listen if your vote didn't matter then why are people trying so hard and <laughs> using so many resources to, to stop you from voting so obviously there's some value in that right that you know you may have something in your home and you might think it's worthless but everybody that comes to your house is offering to buy it off of your hand you're going to start trying to wonder why is this thing so valuable and you're going to do your research and and then you eventually discover what what gives that thing value and what gives you know your vote value is that it does have the power to change things and you know and it, i tell people that the, the voting booth is the ultimate equalizer in our democracy because no matter how rich you are, you know, you have just as much power as Bill Gates and you have just as much power as the president of the United States because it's one person, one vote. And when we use it, especially collectively, we see good things happen. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and on that point about keeping that, that fight alive, I know that uh, the Florida legislature has made it seemingly as, as hard as they could for everyone who's, whose rights you fought for with, with the amendment to actually exercise that, that right to vote, uh, adding fines and, and perhaps other things. Give, give us an update on where things stand now and how your organization is coming up with solutions to help the, the, the folks that you serve. Yeah, so we know after we passed Amendment 4, which I have to say was a, a beautiful moment. Uh, one of the things I loved most about passing of Amendment 4 was that we were able to bring together people from all walks of life, all political persuasions to actually pass this amendment. You know, over a million uh, people who voted for Amendment 4 were Republicans. And we actually had a million more votes than any candidate that ran for governor. 
But the most beautiful part about that was those 5.1 million people who voted for Amendment 4, I looked at those votes, and I didn't see votes that was based on hate or fear. Rather, I seen votes that was based on love, forgiveness, and redemption. And we, I believe we showed the world that love can, in fact, win the day. That we don't have to tear each other down, uh, demonize each other in order to advance some uh, some sound policy reforms, right? But immediately after that beautiful moment, the legislature got involved. And anytime you bring politics into something, it becomes ugly. And they basically determined that um, they had the um, arrogance to believe that only politicians or only, you know, these state officials had the wherewithal to know how to properly implement uh, Amendment 4. And, and they came up with a um, statute that basically required the payment of fines and fees before a person could uh, would be able to register to vote. Our response to that was not to engage with these folks on a political level, but to seek a much higher, more or more high ground. Uh, and, you know, our approach was, listen, let's take this obstacle and turn it into an opportunity. We were able to raise over $27 million uh, from over 90,000 uh, people throughout the country uh, and help people pay off their fines and fees. Because, you know, at its core, we believe that, you know, no one should ever be forced to choose between putting food on their table or being able to vote, right? Uh, and w while raising this money, something incredible happened, right? Not only were we able to expand democracy to a lot of people in Florida, but the process in doing so made our organization the largest contributor to Florida's economy from a nonprofit organization where we infused over $27 million into Florida's economy, which ended up not only creating a more inclusive democracy, but we were saving people's jobs, right? There were uh, people who worked for the court systems and, and public defenders who were getting ready to get laid off or furloughed because of the impact of the uh, a COVID pandemic. And, but because of our efforts, they were able to maintain their jobs. We were able to save taxpayers dollars. And, and, and to me, that created a much uh, uh, impactful narrative because the very same people who were once the most despised in uh, that state happened to be the people that was the biggest champions of that state during uh, the COVID pandemic. So we, we saved people's jobs, taxpayers' uh, dollars. We distributed over a million masks throughout the state in different prisons and jails and uh, uh, homeless shelters and supervisor of elections office over 500,000 ounces of sanitizers that we were able to distribute, you know, and I'm talking from uh, Key West to, to Pensacola and all points in between. And there's no other organization that, that stepped up uh, like that in Florida. And it helped shift the narrative and it helped show two things. Number one, that when we fight for the lowest among us, right, everybody benefits from that. And it also shows that, that we're not these 
monsters that uh, no previous narratives would would make us out to be that we are human beings that we are part of society and we want to contribute to society trust me the overwhelming majority of people with felony convictions are not that when they were kids they were like when i grow up i want to be a criminal or whatever you know and even after they've been incarcerated you know we're not in in jail or prison saying man i can't wait to get out so i can go back to prison right that we we're regular human beings that we we have dreams and desires and we want to you know be able to enjoy life liberty and happiness and be able to pursue happiness and it showed the humanity in us and showed that yes we can be contributing members of society and so that was a moment that was created because the legislation wanted to create obstacles and we were not going to let that deter us such a positive, positive message. And I, I, I think that, you know, a lot of people working in various aspects of politics could could take take a lesson from that about, you know, turning obstacles into opportunities. Well, I think that is a perfect place to end things. Desmond Mead, thank you so much <laughs> for joining us. Thank you so us. much, Jenna. All right. So I think that interview is confirmation to you that that this is a human being worth listening to. I wanted to just start by talking about what he said about how this moment when when the amendment 4 passed and passed so resoundingly and what a, a moment of triumph and celebration that was and then almost immediately the Florida legislature came in and said well fine you know you can get the right to vote but you have to pay back all the fees and fines and so even a hundred hundreds of dollars is is a bridge too far but they said yeah go ahead as soon as you get all this paid off then you'll get your rights back and so you know there's something fundamentally disheartening about that however desmond immediately goes to the fact that people all over the nation and i think all over the world Mm -hmm. donated to a fund that the frrc created to pay back these fines and after whatever it is a couple years they've collected $27 $27 million. Now, I could, and I actually do, have this very cynical reaction that this you know, allows the legislature to have their cake and eat it too. You know, on the one hand, they, uh, they're saying they're keeping these people off the rolls who they're worried are going to vote Democratic. And if they do get in, the only way they get in is to get free money into the, into the state coffers. And $27 million is not not nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, you know, I, you know, there is this, that is evidence to me of this f- pretty basic question I have about my own innate cynicism about the political process and about political uh, players and his basic political strategy of appealing to our common humanity. So two things. One, I think that we have to keep in mind that, you know, like talk about love and humanity. I do on its surface, it seems like kind of whimsical, but, you know, like Martin Luther King Jr. was also in that camp and he talked about loving your common citizen and doing the right thing for humanity 
But I think maybe on a maybe on a more kind of nuts and bolts level is that we also need to keep in mind that, you know, democracy has several components. One is voting. And then, you know, we have like elites and what um, Mr. Mead was able to bring together is voters, regular citizens who wanted to do something different. And then we have elites and our, you know, the, the way that our democracy runs, so-called democracy runs, I guess, is with a lot of institutional mechanisms that serves to exclude people like Desmond Mead from coming to the forefront as political candidates and as political representatives. And so some of the things I'm thinking about are campaign finance, which he talks about, gerrymandering, even just the ability to get third parties on the ballot. And so we might have a different set of representatives in state legislators and in Congress if we had a different set of rules. So I, I hear what you're saying, Chris, but I, I, I also think it's important for us to keep in mind that there are millions of citizens who would have it be different if we had a different system, if we had a better system of accountability. Yeah, I mean, th- this is an argument that you and I have had before, that you know, you are a lot more hopeful about right. the, init- the ability of the people to overrun the 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 entrenched interests of the elite and you know i hope you're right i, I but, but 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 this but amendment 4 shows that i understand that i understand DeSantis that. won by only 18,000 votes mm-hmm. amendment 4 won by like a million right right no, so I get it. The and people and, did the the people did what they were supposed to do. They yep. did the right thing. No, absolutely. And this was a, a voter initiative, right? And so it's only you know in states where there is the uh, opportunity for uh, voter initiatives, this is the kind of thing that that can happen. I think it's harder to come up with uh, com- agreement on like, I don't know, ranked choice voting or something, but any- anything's possible. But what I would, what I would want to um, not lose sight of, I guess, is there's not a person like us, who who focuses on politics in the United States right now, who isn't concerned about uh, polarization, negative partisanship, tribalism. Mm -hmm. And everybody comes up with these ways of addressing it. And his argument at at bottom is um, it, it is a strategy for addressing that problem. And his strategy is to cut it off at the knees Mm -hmm. and to say, you are not a a Republican or a Democrat, you are a human being just like me. And if you see your identity as being caught up or overwhelmed by partisanship, then that's not just bad, it's it's inaccurate. You are more than that, as am I. And that which unites us, our humanity, is far more important than this and and again, my first reaction is, oh come on, you know that's 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 not going to work. But it did work. It did work. And so you know you got to take. I have to take that seriously. Yeah, he reminds me a lot of like William Barber. 
right? Yes. Let's bring morality back Mm -hmm. into politics and let's do the right thing. And, you know, not like the partisan thing. He, he, he pushes us to think about who should be able to vote. Um, and why, why do we think that some people are more worthy than others? Yeah. I mean, so again, our kind of, we have, it seems like with these rigid ideas about the things that, you know, the voting age used to be 21 mm-hmm. and now it's 18. It could be something different. It used to be that non-citizen males, but citizen women had different voting rights and now that's flipped. So none of the things that we do concerning voting are right, right. are inevitable. And that, you know, on some level, we do have to kind of think through, well, who who should be able to and who should have a say, who should be belonging in our in our society. And, I, you know, I think that one of the things that he points out is voting is a cornerstone of belonging mm-hmm. in society. So I just I'm really at the beginning of this episode, we were trying to take a bet on how long it would take us to get to the dark side. I just don't think I can do it today. I really kind of like, there's a little part of me that wants to disagree with you, Candace. I really do just want to say, ah, this is nonsense. This is never going to work, blah, 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 blah. But I can't. I can't. So I'm not going to. I'm, I'm going to stop fighting it. I'm, I'm, on, I'm on the peace train. So <laughs> thanks again to Desmond for his trip to, uh, to um, Happy Valley and for uh, all his work. Thanks to Jennifer for a, uh, a great interview. Uh, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watts-Smith for Democracy Works. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Andy Grant is our producer, and our editors are Jen Bortz, Chris Kugler, and Mark Stitzer. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. If you liked what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. Democracy Works is a proud member of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts focused on democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Learn more at democracygroup.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.